You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mammal Watching Podcast with me, John Hall in New York. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. Happy birthday, Charles. I have to start by saying that. Charles has just turned 40 again. And um, it's good to see him on his birthday, getting the best present ever, a chance to talk on the podcast. How's it going? It's going very well, thanks, John. Yes, um, it's good. And I recently came back from Ecuador, which was a really fun trip because I'd actually lived in Ecuador as a kid and spent one year over there and then got shipped off to boarding school in the UK. And so that was 40 some years ago. And so very interesting to go back and saw lots of great animals, including the spectacled bear, which was one of my major animals on my wish list. And also a mountain tapir. And I want to talk about this a little bit because I saw it in rather unusual circumstances. So um, I was staying at the Termas Hotel in Papayakta, which is where most people go to see the bears and mountain tapirs. And I went for a walk out of the hotel um, on the hotel grounds at night and walked about half an hour or so. And I was looking through the thermal imager. And after a while, I saw a red dot, big red dot in the field. So I scanned around, making sure it wasn't a cow, it wasn't a deer or something like that. And sure enough, this was a tapir. And I could tell it was a tapir because it turned around at one point. I could see its big nose, its big white schnoz. And it's, it's clearly definitely a tapir. But this animal was about half a kilometer away and it was misty. So my torchlight could not penetrate the mist. So I couldn't see anything by torchlight. And yet through the thermal, I could absolutely clearly make this animal out. And that was it. I didn't see the animal um, that night other than through the thermal. Now, I did actually finding the next day. In fact, we went out the next day and I point out to the family, this is where I saw it and the animal happened to be standing there. But it does bring up this question. Does one count an animal that one sees through a thermal imager? What, what are your thoughts on this, John? This is, um, this is a, one of the great questions out there, isn't it? You know, what, what, is the universe really infinite? What happens after we die and should you count mammals in the thermal scope? It's up there with the great questions. Um, yeah, this is um, something I have obviously thought about. Um, it's weird, isn't it? Because if, if I see something through binoculars, so there's technology helping me, I have no problem at all. It's like, yeah, there's no way I wouldn't count something I'd only seen through bins or a scope. But I too feel through a thermal scope, it's a little bit different. And I don't know why, just because there's batteries involved and it's somehow art of more artificial. Um, you know, that the first sort of good sighting I ever had, what well, was with you through the thermal scope was our, was our famous pygmy hippo in Sierra Leone. And that, if we hadn't seen that, I would have had no problem, I think, counting that because we yeah. had such a nice view and it was so classically a pygmy hippo. But if I saw, like I'd seen a, um, like a flying squirrel, just a sort of, blob in a tree that you couldn't mm-hmm. really tell was a flying squirrel except you knew it was because there was one with a radio collar on mm-hmm. that I wouldn't count um and I guess ultimately then it's this personal personal feeling of is it sort of sad do you feel like you've actually seen the animal um, right and I think the fact there's batteries involved doesn't worry me the fact you saw your tapir through the fog doesn't worry me would you have been satisfied with that view is a per- it's a question only you can ask luckily you saw it the next day so it's a it's a moot point. Um, and also, there's, it, for me, that when I think about mammal watching, there's two, um, there are two kind of reasons I like to put things on the list. Mm-hmm. One is the, the sort of stamp collecting of cataloging all the world's mammals. I've actually seen all of them tick off in the wild and the bins there. So mm-hmm. in, that, in that sense, I think it counts perfectly well. You've been there, you've been in its presence, you've seen it. It doesn't really matter if you're using a thermal scope or a periscope. You've You've seen it. But mm-hmm. the, the other reason, which is far more satisfying, is to have observed and really seen properly all of the world's the mammals or species you're looking at. And, and then it wouldn't, that wouldn't, wouldn't get me going for the right. second one. So yeah. 
yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's an important question i know a lot of people we all probably think about this even if not everyone will take the time to talk about it on the podcast yeah and the, the thing is i've the, there's only one species actually that i have only seen through a thermal and that was the red river hog and i saw a big sounder mm. of um, hogs come in to the bai in sangabai yeah. in central african republic and the point is over there the animals the elephants in particular get extremely nervous if they see any sort of light so i wasn't about to switch the torch on and yet using the thermal imager i could very clearly see these uh, red river hogs i could make out their ear patterns um, i could you know they, it was clear that there was it was nothing else and was it as exciting a sighting as seeing them you know in light no but equally it was it was perfectly adequate uh, for yeah. me and and i guess this really goes to just show that everyone's listening it's a very personal thing isn't it yeah. because we've had people on on this podcast who some people like alex meyer he records animals that he sees in zoos when we were out with uh todd in north carolina and he counts roadkill animals mm -hmm. that he finds as, as roadkill mostly because he, he often stuffs them and of course then you get you know the people who seem to operate on us like you know see one wild animal get one free as well to so like pad out the list <laughs> and, you know, the species like... i'm looking at is the one i haven't seen yet for sure even if no one can else else will ever know that <laughs> yeah. that's right and so it's and it really is a personal you know issue to, in my mind and frankly I really don't care from my perspective, you know, how do people see it? What, what, what do they tally on their list? They can, people can put mammoths on their list as far as I'm concerned. But, um, you know, the only thing from my perspective is if you do see an animal to at least, if you're going to do a trip report, at least give the reader an indication of um, whether it was an absolute confirmed sighting mm. or it was a, I think it was a such and such animal. Because what you don't want to do is lead people out, off on a wild goose chase because let's face it, there's a limited amount of time and limited amount of money. So you don't want to go running off after a, an animal that you think might be there based on someone's misidentification. But otherwise, yeah, mammal lists are a very personal thing. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree 100%. And, and so they should be. There's no need for, we, we'll do, it's, there's no value to this really except for, it's a personal thing and so whatever entertains us and makes us happy is fine but i i also completely agree about the the um the, the, the being very sure being very honest about how certain you are i have wasted time on certain species after reading reports and you, you go there and you spend hours or days looking for something and then it's you talk to a guy and you begin to it's not there or it's very very unlikely and then you get back mm -hmm. to the person who reported it and it's I think I saw it, and and of course one one kind of mutant zombie sighting will set off a whole bunch of others because then other people come along, mm -hmm. and they'll see something in the distance, and they'll say, "Oh, it must have been this because John Hall saw it." So right. there is a problem there, both in in terms of sort of wasting our people's time and energy and putting people off from mammal watching, but also if science gets involved and they start to see these records and they think. Oh, there's a popular, you know, and then scientists are wasting money. And so there's all sorts of problems with that. So I, yeah, I think people can say they may have seen whatever they want, but to be, to sort of qualify sightings, I think that would be very, very helpful. And I've, I do try, if I see something rare coming in now, you know, I work as like someone who's a statistician, I have this sort of philosophy and statistics, it's called Bayesian, where you take all the evidence. Mm -hmm. And basically if someone sees a rare mammal, a really rare mammal, my, my first thought is they probably haven't. There's a sort of statistics. If you get an interesting result in your data, it's probably wrong. Um, and it's, so I'm like, for, you know, there's a wealth of evidence that says you probably didn't see that. Now you may have done, but I will go back and start asking questions. And it happened recently with all those reports from Ivory Coast, um, with people reporting Johnston's Janet. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about that species. And I, I, I wouldn't be able to idea it from a, any other Janet, but I'm, I, I knew it was supposed to be very rare. And I'm, reading these reports and they, they people saw each report comes in there so we saw a ton of Johnson's Dennett's and it's basically unknown I'm like, really so I start writing and I, wrote, I wrote before we published them, I said I don't want to put this out unless we can be are you really sure it seems kind of rare and yeah I think they, they're, they're right we 
looked at the pictures. I sent them to other people, the, the, the stewards who we had on the podcast. And they're like, yeah, looks like Johnson and Janet. And it's just, you know, again, it's the fact no one's been there looking. And their mama watchers are the first people now to maybe to find a big population. Do. So that's great. But it was good. I wanted to check before I put this out there, before it started other kind of hairs running, as they say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I remember when Lara and I were, were writing um, our field guide to the mammals of Tanzania, I, I was working on the philosophy of do no harm. And I became very suspicious of just about any record that was sent to me. <laughs> you know, people would write and say, hey, so a wildebeest in the Serengeti. And I'd write back and say, are you sure? <laughs> because I just really did not want to put things in press, um, which would, you know, lead people astray. But yeah, I think it's, you know, one of the things that people hopefully will do is if they see something and think, yeah, that's in a possibility, or later on realize that it's not the animal that they thought it was, to go back to their trip reports and to clarify that. And I think that's something that would be really useful. Absolutely. No, and I've, I've done it myself. I mean, I've made mistakes so many times. I've been looking, I see the thing I want to see, and it's, it's, mm-hmm. There's, a, there's probably a mental, a diagnosed mental condition for this, some right. sort of mass <laughs> hypnosis. But I've, so many times with other people, I've seen things and I've absolutely convinced is what I'm looking for. And I've got pictures and I've got back, I've looked at the pictures and I still haven't realized. And then I sent it to someone else and I go, no, no, that's a, that was, we did it in Tasmania. Um, yeah, Tasmania, I was looking for a, a, a rat and I saw a little pygmy possum with someone else. There's also an experienced mammal watcher and it's half the size, but we were convinced this thing was big and we got good pictures. We were both sure it was, you know, this big, it must've been. And then when I looked, it was like days later and I sent to other people. Now it's, it's a, it's a completely, it's a, it's a marsupial. It's half the size. What was I thinking? And it, so right. it's very, very easily done. Yeah. Pictures help a lot. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And interesting. You, can see why, you can see why people see thylacines still in uh, Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I remember there's um, a really interesting guy called Steve Van Dyke, who we've actually been trying to get on the podcast, um, who's the curator of mammals at the Queensland Museum in the early 2000s. He's retired now. But he he was one of those museum guys who was big into sort of collecting animals and all those things, and but at least getting good evidence. And he, talk, he talked about some farmers in outback Queensland who called him up and they'd seen a thylacine. Mm-hmm. And they even got, they had bad pictures of this thing. And it was this stripy dog-shaped animal with black stripes across it it really looked like it mm-hmm. so he, he and some guys went out from the museum to see what was going on and it was um it was a dingo with distemper so the fur had dropped out of this thing so it gave this weird kind of look and looked very much skinnier and sort of longer legged than it might normally do and it's it was so emaciated its ribs were sticking out and gave it a stripy appearance wow. so it was just an example of how you know even people who know their country and the animals can can be led astray um yeah. so it's in this day and age everyone's got cameras there's, there's really no excuse not to try and get pictures of, of most things indeed indeed so john we do actually have some good news from the podcast team uh do you want to share this with the audience yes i would love to i'm extremely happy um to announce that jose jose gabriel jose gabriel martinez fonseca to give him his full title um who is our one of the producer and editor and really helped us get this thing off off the ground um he just passed his phd he's now a doctor so you know second only um to being on the podcast that's probably one of his his biggest achievements to get through his phd (laughs) um he he defended his phd um you know he presented the results and he did it over Zoom, at least the public part of his presentation. And he had, there were like 150 people tuned in, I think, to watch this because he's so popular. And it was a really great presentation. He did it about um, spectral bats in Nicaragua. And he's, um, I'm just so happy for him. He's, he is one of those people where I have not heard anyone say a bad word about him. Everyone who meets him is instantly just taken in by his energy his enthusiasm his humor he's just just such a nice such a smart talented nice person so i'm really pleased he's a very very well deserved phd and i'm excited to see what the future holds for him yeah indeed absolutely huge congratulations jose and i would say it's a slippery slope down from here but i won't (laughs) (laughs) so Today, we are very pleased to have Dr. Rob Foster on the podcast. Um, now, I've known Rob for ooh, 
probably well over 30 years um, since the days when he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. And both Rob and I ended up working in Tanzania, him doing his PhD on dung beetles on the Serengeti Plains and uh, me counting elephants on Mount Kilimanjaro. And I still remember uh, absolutely wonderful two weeks that I spent with Rob and his wife Lana at their research camp in Ndutu, um, going out every day and setting up traps or dung beetles out on, on the open plains. And Rob now has an ecological consulting firm that's based in Thunder Bay in Canada, which frankly sounds like an absolutely amazing job because it involves doing lots and lots of surveys of wildlife and their habitat. And through this work, he has live trapped thousands of small rodents and insectivores. He has captured woodland caribou by boating up to them, grabbing them by their tail, hog tying them, and then pulling them onto small boats in order to sample them. And he has flown over 15,000 square kilometers surveying woodland caribou, wolverines, and other large mammals in northern Ontario. And he's currently also doing camera trap surveys for large mammals, including wolverines, as we speak. So, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very good to meet you. I've heard a little about you from Charles, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more during the, just this chat. Um, Rob, can you start by, I mean, Charles has introduced you already, but tell us a little bit more about about the work you're doing and how and how you've ended up doing what you're doing. Well, probably like many of mammal watching community, I've been in, interested in mammals and animals since a young age, you know, starting with reading Daryl Durrell's books, as we probably all devoured as when you we were young and uh, carrying on through, through my studies. And uh, nowadays, I, as Charles mentioned, um, I run a small consulting firm here on the North Shore of Lake Superior and work mainly in Northern Ontario, but um, I've done work from BC up to the territories and over to Quebec um, on a range of things, ranging from uh, rare plant surveys and rare insect surveys to putting telemetry um, acoustic uh, tags in walleye for spawning surveys for hydro clients and um, working with mammals um, often either for, for the government or for industrial clients or ENGOs like um, World Wildlife Funder, um, the Nature Conservancy. So it's a, a real wide a range of activities that we do and, and clients and landscapes, but um, mammals are a big part of it, uh, particularly uh, bats, um, since uh, their numbers are really tanked in North America from white nose syndrome. And uh, woodland caribou is a, a listed species in, uh, in Canada and uh, in Ontario. So we do a lot of work, um, uh, particularly aerial surveys and impact assessments for woodland caribou. And then um, and then, you know, other mammals um, where the project uh, demands. Yeah. So it's a, quite a broad range of things. And it's always very interesting. I always feel like we're kind of on the bottom of the le learning curve. Um, there's always something new to learn, which is great. Uh, we, I love being out in the field. I probably spend, you know, the majority of my time from April to November, basically the snow-free months um, in the field, um, doing one thing or other, uh, point counts for birds or, you know, setting mammal traps or, Mammal, small mammal traps or um, or camera traps, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And and how big is Ontario? Just just for those who don't know Canada. Oh yeah, it's. I always find that hard because <laughs> I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's uh, probably two thousand kilometers east to west, and wow. it's uh, more than twice that north south. Probably three times that north south. Yeah. So the it's southern huge. tip of yeah. Ontario is farther south than Northern California, and it goes all the way up to the Hudson Bay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh, so Ontario actually gets up to the Hudson Bay. I did not know that. Yeah. So it would take you um, probably 24 hours to drive from east to west. Yeah. So if you're driving nonstop. Yeah, it's, it's a big place. It's, big as, right. pretty, it's about as big as Western Europe. That's uh, extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes for, for field work, I've like driven seven hours um, to a study site, um, then done whippoorwill surveys till one o'clock in the morning, got up, started point counts for songbirds at five, did that till 10 and then driven home the next day. So yeah. Uh, you know, 2000 kilometers sort of in two days. Um, or, uh, yeah. So that's, we try to do that less. <laughs> that, uh, driving at night here is always a big risk uh, running into moose because um, yeah. they're very solid and um, 
we're usually the, the loser in that encounter. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a big area, but we're kind of used to different scales. Our geographic scale is kind of like Charles's um, home country um, uh, temporal scale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As a, a Rhodes Scholar, you'd know all about that, that thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, Rob, let's let's talk about bears, because um, I think it's fair to say that you have had more than your fair share of running with bears. And I remember the last time you were over here at my house, um, just over breakfast, you started telling me about one of your encounters with a black bear that attacked you. And I remember being pretty gobsmacked by this story. Um, so would you care to share that with the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, I've told it a few times and I, I hope I'm internally consistent with the stories I tell. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it happened about almost a decade ago, um, but it's pretty well seared into my memory banks. Um, so I was working north of Folliette in Northern Ontario in Boreal Forest working alone. And I was out doing point counts for songbirds. So I just had walked in about two and a half kilometers from my truck through sort of Jack Pine Black Spruce Forest and had finished up my point counts for the day at about 930 because that's when the, the survey window stops. And I was in a, a beaver meadow. So uh, it would have be, been a, a beaver pond, then the dam had broken and it had now largely dried out and had this, you know, open sedgy uh, grassy sort of marsh with a small stream running through it and about sort of maybe 80 meters across. And I just finished up and uh, was rummaging about and I had a lumbar pack that I was um, uh, putting away in my field notebook. And I heard a noise and looked up and across the uh, edge of the, uh, the beaver meadow, there was a black bear coming out of the uh, line of shrubs of alder at the, uh, that uh, bordered the, uh, this opening. And so I realized, oh, there's a bear. So I've been sitting on a stump. So I, I stood up to make myself look large and, and held my, my, my bag above my head and roared at it. So I knew I was there. So I didn't want it to keep coming across and stumble across me and then, um, and then charge defensively. And as soon as he saw me, he, um, he started to accelerate towards me. And so I did, kind of did his mental checklist. Okay, I don't have food. It's not a, a female with cubs. Um, I didn't bump into it on a trail, it, so it's not a defensive reaction. This is these kind of, you know, it's a predatory attack. Um, and I, I'd done a fair bit of reading because of some other bear encounters prior to this. And so I went through this mental checklist and went, oh, crap. And uh, so I pulled up my bear spray, um, and I, I'd never actually sprayed a bear, so I didn't want to have him come at me full speed. So I thought, oh, I'll run, and I'll run up to the stream, which I'd already uh, been to and there was about a it was about a meter and a half wide and about that deep. I thought I'll, I'll meet him at the stream and that might slow him down kind of like a bit of a moat and so I don't have to spray him as he's coming in at full speed and then might you know continue on even after he got sprayed. And so I run up to the stream and by that time the the bear is there. Um, I thought he would just plow through it because it's not really that deep. Um, but he was kind of running back and forth, taking a few steps either way, looking where it was going to cross. And I'm standing up there, waving my arms, you know, I'm 6'2", and, you know, trying to make myself look big and just roaring at it, not facing him at all. And uh, then he, I see him crouch, and he looks like he's going to jump over the stream. And so I back up a couple of paces. I don't want him to land on me. And he jumps across. And so I let him have it with a bear spray at about a meter and a half, two meters. So he's right there. And he gets it in the face, and he jumps back over the stream. And so I stopped spraying because there's no point in spraying is retreating butt. And then I run back to where I'd left my, my bag and I put it, my gear away and I pull up my Leatherman. I had a, a little um, uh, multi-tool. Uh, normally I carry a, a big uh, blade knife, but it, it was on my other pack and I was too lazy to transfer from pack to pack thing. Oh, you know, what are the odds? I never, I don't need this. And I pulled the Leatherman, I picked the blade, and I just thought to myself, God, this is so puny. <laughs> and, um, and the week before, someone had been mauled a couple hundred kilometers from where I were, and I'd heard it on the radio, and they were talking about, he survived. Uh, he was saved by some passerbys after this bear had basically pulled him out of his cabin and was scalping him in the ditch. And, and he was describing how the bear was biting on his head, and you could feel the teeth. And I was going, man, this has got to go well, because... You know, I wasn't so much worried about dying, but I don't really like pain. 
And I think this is going to be really painful if it doesn't go well. And this is like all your neurons are just firing in overdrive, right? Because it's like, this is like for real. This is, you know, it's game on. And uh, so I, this is all running through my head. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to. I don't want to leave my wife Lana's as a widow with two kids. And so this is, you know, try, you know, everything's just in a blur. And I look up and the bear is coming back. So the spray wasn't enough to completely deter him. He's back at the stream. And I thought game on. So I you know, put on my bum bag. because I, you know, I didn't want to lose my data. And um, so they run back to the stream to meet him at the stream again. And he's again, looking where to cross again and uh i'm roaring he jumps across again i let him have the bear spray again sort of at a meter and a half or so and then he peels off and i kind of make it where back to where i had been in the center of this opening and the bear is recovered by that and he's about 10 to 20 meters away and trying to sneak up on me flank me it's like I know you're there, dude. Um, and he's charges me and I roar at him. And when he gets to within sort of a couple of meters of me, I, you know, I'm charging a couple of steps forward. And then when he gets close within a meter and a half or two meters, uh, I'm holding the bear spray out in front of me, the can. And by now he doesn't like the can he's associated the can of bear spray with the bear spray. And so when we got that close, he would, peel off and turn around and I chase him a couple more steps and he'd run like 10 or 15 meters and then stop and then look and I'd stop because it was really hummocky and I was really worried about falling because um, I didn't want to trip and then have him on me in the flash before I could fight him off and so this went back he tried to circle me and then try to use the cover to come in low there's some low shrubs and then you know the tussocks of grass and um, then try to you know, creep up on me. And then I turn to face him and roar and charge at him and then close the gap. And he'd run away for a bit and then stop. I'd stop. He'd stop. We look at each other. And this went on for, and probably did it half a dozen, a dozen times. Um, lasted maybe like 10 minutes, maybe. You know, it's hard to gauge time. We went back and forth doing this. Um, at one point I stopped and I, I had a cruising vest on and one uh, one pocket was a, a GPS unit, which I fortunately had a, been keeping a track. So I knew where I came from. And the other one I had a camera. And so I took a picture of him um, thinking that, oh, I got to document this in case he kills me and he rips up the body. Then my wife will know and people know what happened, which, you know, in retrospect, obviously they put two and two together that, you know, that I got eaten by bear. Um, it wouldn't be too hard to figure that out. But this is what, you know, it was all firing through my head um, that this is important to document this so that, uh, if things went south, uh, they would know what happened. Um, anyway, this went back and forth, um, and I wasn't couldn't go anywhere. Anytime I tried to go back in the direction to where my truck was, you know, two and a half kilometers away, he would close the gap really quickly and try to get me from behind. So the only way I was making any uh, I could go forward was when I was chasing him, and no one was coming to get me. I had a fuel partner, but he was, you know, tens of kilometers away and uh, we're going to meet up at, you know, 10 or 11. Um, so I realized that the only way I could move forward and get back towards the truck was by chasing the bear. And so when the bear circled me and I knew where he'd lined up where, where I had come out of the woods, I charged him and then I could run towards him and get 10 or 15 meters before he peeled off and tried to circle back and get me from behind. So we did that. We made it through off the beaver meadow and then through the bushes and the alders in the side. And then I was basically chasing him up the slope. I was on hands and knees at this stage, uh, holding the bear, uh, the can of bear spray in front of me um, to ward him off. And he was giving ground as I was chasing him. And then we get up onto a little bit of a knoll. He closes the gap. I spray him again, this time probably at a meter and a half. And that buys me a bit of a bit of time. And then I get up into the forest proper, uh, which is kind of a open feather moss and jack pine and black spruce. And I think, oh, maybe I climb a tree, but you know, climbing a tree doesn't help because in the boreal, there's really no side branches on a tree anyways to climb up. And the bear can climb way better and probably just pull you out of the tree anyways. Uh, they, black bears are extremely good climbers. So that's, you know, write that off with this, you know, keep staying on the ground. He comes up. And he stands up and he grabs onto a tree and he woofs. That's the only time he made any noise during the entire encounter. 
um, where you could see he was frustrated and kind of batted at this, uh, this moss hummock. And then he charges me again. I charge back at him. He backs up and tries to then circle me. And then he, he uh, charges me and then he stands up and he grabs onto this tree and I charge him. And then we are, we're like a meter and a half apart. He's on the other side of the tree. I'm trying to spray him. I'm holding out the can of bear spray on one side. And then I would hold the bear spray out to try to spray him. And then he ducked to the other side of the tree with his head. So we're going back and forth and back and forth. And I could see we're so close that I didn't have my arm fully out because I was worried that he would knock the can of bear spray out of my hand. And I could see that he, one of his, his right eye was half closed by now from the bear spray. And so we do this back and forth. And it's almost comical that, you know, the stakes hadn't been so high. And finally, you know, I timed it right and I sprayed him right in the face from like a meter away. And some of it blows back into my face and I get some of it into one of my eyes with blisters. Um, and then he drops in and, and backs off. And then it was, uh, he, I tried to go in the direction that I knew from my GPS track, which way I'd come through in the, in the bush. And then he would parallel me. And then whenever I wasn't looking at him, then he would kind of try to sneak up behind me and I'm yelling at him and going, I see you bear. I see you. I'm yelling and roaring at him. And I pick up some sticks as we're going along and, and I, had that in one hand with the Leatherman and then the bear spray in the other. It was kind of inconvenient to be honest. But, um, and then sometimes I switched the Leatherman into the can, into the hand with the bear spray. And then I throw the stick at him as I chased him. Cause he would, he would circle around and then I would line him up in the direction I wanted to go. And then I'd charge him. And then as he got close enough, he would give ground because of the can of bear spray in the other hand. And then I'd throw this other stick at him. And a couple of times I hit him other times it, it kind of, you know, maybe it's not great, but uh, it kind of would scooch him on a bit faster if I actually hit him with the stick. And then we carried on going through the woods like that. And then sometimes he would veer off a bit to the site and I wanted to keep going in the direction of where my truck was. So I'd kind of uh, circle around and line him up in the direction I was going. And so I basically chased him through the woods and he would, and every time I stopped paying full attention to him and yelling at him and and going at him aggressively, he would circle back behind me and try to use cover and come for me. And so this, we would did a kilometer and a quarter through the woods this way. And it took us 45 minutes, basically. Um, so between, yeah, 45 minutes total from the first time I saw him to the last time he finally gave up. After about a kilometer and a quarter, you'd sort of drift off a little bit further before he'd um, try to come in from behind again. And he's kind of seemed to be losing interest that I wasn't the easy pickings that he, you know, initially thought back in the beaver meadow. And after four, you know, four uh, sprays in the face with, with bear spray, it seemed to be enough. I had a, an extra large can of bear spray. It was about you know, almost 300 grams. They come in different sizes. And um, I had, it seemed like I had a, just a little bit left. And that's what I was saving in case, you know, I tripped and he ended up on top of me. Then I have, you know, one last spray in the face at close range. Unfortunately, I didn't need to use that. Um, but uh, yeah, I try to keep in the open forest as much as possible. To, uh, as I was kind of doing this, you know, uh, dance with him through the woods as I, we chase each other through the woods. Yeah. So it was, then he finally peeled off, seemed to give up. And then I actually, that was the only time I had, it, I had a stick in my boot. <laughs> took my boot off um, very carefully, make sure he wasn't still trying to sneak up on me, get the stick out of my boot. And then slowly made my way the other sort of kilometer and a quarter back to my truck um, and stopping every sort of 10 or 15 meters, make sure he wasn't, you know, hadn't looped back around and, and was trying to come at me again. Yeah. So I pretty hoarse by the time I got back, back to my truck. By then my, my field partner had arrived in his vehicle and it was just about walking in. I was trying to yell to him, you know, bear, bear. I could barely speak by then because I'd been yelling at the bear so much. Um, and then, uh, so he was like, where's the bear? Where's the bear? <laughs> Uh, I said, no, Bear's, Bear's been there and done that. Yeah, so we're good. But um, yeah, it took it took a long time. It, it wasn't what I expected. Then I I drove to the nearest town, um, Folliette, and uh, notified the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police. Um, that was the only um, uh, emergency number I had because we'd seen people not there, but on that bush road the previous day, uh, that well, actually that morning, um, and so we knew some people were in the area and we didn't want them to run into this bear that was aggressive. Um, 
And eventually they notified the Ministry of Natural Resources and I gave them the rundown on what had happened. And then we were moving to another site where we were working and eventually um, CBC Radio caught up with me. To, they got wind of the story and uh, interviewed me for it. Um, but only after I made the promise that it wouldn't air it until I actually told my wife what had happened. Because I had called her afterwards <laughs> to say I had a bit of a bear encounter, but I didn't have given her any details. I didn't really want her to worry because this was like, you know, day three of 10 days in the bush. And um, I mean, she's not a nervous Nelly. She lived with me in a tent in, in the Serengeti, as you know, for a couple of years. So um, she's, uh, you know, pretty good with that. But nonetheless, this isn't sort of your typical bear encounter. Holy crap. <clears throat> yeah, that's pretty much what went through my head, a lot of it. <laughs> How do you, I mean, it sounds like you just, you were thinking so kind of rationally and logically about what was going on. I just, I don't know why I'd be like, but I know I wouldn't be doing that. I, I wouldn't be. We always hope that we mark. won't embarrass ourselves <laughs> in these situations. But I mean, the truth is we really don't know. Um, and for me, it, it wasn't fear, but it was just an acute realization that if it doesn't go perfectly right, it's not going to end well. Um, Earlier in the year, a friend of mine, another bio, who did not have her bear spray with her, and, and nor her nor a knife even, um, had got attacked by a bear, a biologist who was, she was working alone and her partner was several hundred meters away. And she got attacked and mauled by a bear. Fortunately, she managed to radio her partner. Um, and the bear mauled her for almost half an hour before her partner got there. Um, and he eventually drove it off with... Um, with a, a knife. Uh, he jumped on the bear and stabbed it several times with a, a blade knife wow. and it got the bear to back off. But by then he'd been mauling her and dragging her through the woods and it tasted blood and did not want to give her up. And it was quite, um, quite, a, uh, quite the struggle to get the bear to finally leave her alone. Fortunately, she survived. Um, wow. They had to medivac, or they had to get two helicopters, a smaller one to cut a pad so they could land a larger medivac helicopter. Um, and, eventually made it to Thunder Bay before she, uh, otherwise she would, you know, was in real risk of bleeding out. She ended up taking over 900 staples to, to clear up her, uh, stitch her back together. Oh, wow. um, and she's hmm. back in the bush. Um, she doesn't, but she's got her bear spray now all the time. Yeah. I thought she should be carrying an Uzi and a bazooka. <laughs> you guys are carrying guns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and wow. how long did it take you to uh, get a, to get over this and get back into the field? Well, uh, it's funny because we met back up with the, there was four of us out in the field and we met back later that day and we all discussed it and said, you know, anyone who wants to go home now can. Um, and it's like, ah, you know, the work's still got to be done. And, and, um, and so we all continued on working. Uh, we worked in pairs for the rest of the week. Um, fortunately, I didn't have to go back into that same spot and, um, and as I said, I, I, we relocated to another spot that was, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away. Uh, but I carried on carrying out field work the rest of the uh, the rest of that um, the rest of the week, and then the rest of the summer. But the rest of the summer, when I was doing um, uh, field work, I always worked in pairs, and I even, you know, hired my uh, my university age nephew just to be my bear baits to watch my back. Well, <laughs> I was, <laughs> while I was uh, walking walking through the woods because I was. Uh, you know, a bit jumping, uh, understandably, particularly in dense bush uh, for the rest of that summer. Um, uh, and but, you know, I didn't have any, you know, nightmares about bears, but just definitely a lot uh, more situationally aware of um, any noise, you know, like really, <laughs> really paid attention. Yeah. I, I, I read the newspaper article that you sent that related to this incident and um, I love the quote at the end. It was by OPP Constable Mark Despati, um, who was asked about your attack. And he said, some bears are docile and will go away at the first sign of human interaction, but others are apparently a little more aggressive and we need to be wary <laughs> of these particular types of animals. And police have warned people in the area to exercise caution. <laughs> a beautifully Canadian understated over there. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, there are bears everywhere. And I remember in Africa being asked, you know, by locals about, oh, what about those bears? You know, like, never mind the lions and the, you know, rhinos and elephants here. You know, you've got those nasty bears. And at the time, I really kind of blew it off. I, by then, 
when I was doing my PhD in Africa, I'd already worked in the bush uh, a fair bit in Canada prior to um, uh, beginning my PhD. And I really didn't think much of bears as, as a risk. Um, and it was, I was just really fortunate in fall yet that I had bear spray with me because we'd been chased back to the chopper by a grizzly up in the Northwest Territories when we were doing work and, and we had left the bear spray in the chopper. Um, and then we ran into a female grizzly with cubs on a trail um, in Northern BC that was really tense because um, they can be really aggressive with cubs. So after that, I started to carry it more uh, religiously because pr prior to that, I, you know, the year before I'd driven off a black bear with, by throwing stones at it. Uh, you know, we were heading out as working alone, um, doing some nighttime um, whippoorwill surveys. And there was one, on the trail out where I was going and uh, he wouldn't leave the trail. So I threw rocks at it until it finally kind of, you know, shrugged and <laughs> basically looked at me kind of like, is that all you got? <laughs> and, um, but did amble away, but I carried on into the dark and then came back, you know, two hours later in the dark with my headlamp on and just a GPS point that this is where I'd seen the bear. And, um, and I wouldn't do that now. Uh, generally speaking, at night, we, if I'm not by the vehicle, uh, we're working in pairs. Um, and if I'm working alone during the day, I've, uh, I have usually two bear spray if, if it's somewhere remote. Um, and I never go pretty much outside of the ve outside of view of the vehicle without bear spray and usually a large knife. I mean, the odds are extremely low um, that you're going to be attacked by a black bear. Um, I mean, you're more likely to die by getting hit by lightning. Um, but there are tails to the bell curve and I'm definitely far out on one of those outlier tails because <laughs> I've had six or seven close encounters. Um, yeah, the following year. So this was June 9th in 2013 and in, on June 9th in 2014, I didn't realize it till afterwards. Um, I had another predatory encounter with a black bear, um, north of Thunder Bay, so a couple hundred kilometers and, um, the irony was the following day I was to be interviewed by the Ministry of Natural Resources for their bear safety training video of this is the importance of having bear spray. Um, and so they were going to interview me about my attack at Folliette and contrast that with my other bio friend who didn't have bear spray and who got badly mauled. And so I've been replaying this story, uh, this um, encounter in Folliette as I drove, you know, three, three hours north of Thunder Bay to do some bird monitoring. Um, and the next morning, so I was out there by myself again, um, bird monitoring at about 7.30. And it was kind of an overcast, a drizzly day. And it's in a cutover. So it's an area that's been um, commercially harvested for trees. And um, it had grown up. So it was pretty dense bush with some leaf patches with some older mature forest. And I was just about to start my bird plot after walking in a few hundred meters. And I hear this uh, twig break maybe sort of 50, 80 meters up and to the right. And then, uh, so I immediately whipped out my, my knife and my bear spray because I was like so pumped from replaying the encounter the previous year on the way up um, that, oh, I'm just so jumpy. But I heard the twig snap, but then I didn't hear anything after that. Normally, like if you hear, if you put up a moose or a bear, usually you'll hear a bunch of crashing as it runs off in the woods. And that didn't happen. So I thought, oh, uh, maybe I'm just imagining things and I'm just jumpy because I've been replaying the, the encounter from last year. And then I hear a noise behind me. And so I turn around and maybe 40 meters behind me to the right, there's this big black bear. And it's a much bigger one than last than that, the year before, which is, you know, maybe two, 250. Um, and this one was big and it was coming in hot. And I, and I pulled out my bear spray. Oh, I still had my bear spray. I popped the cap off my bear spray and went, fuck, not this again. And this thing came, was coming in quiet, no noise. And it seems to be the usual case when they're predatory attacks and has its ears up. And then it slows down as it's going through a slash pile. So there's some uh, logging debris, which kind of slows it down. And I spray him at it maybe sort of five or seven meters. And then he peels off and, um, and then stops and kind of looks at me sideways, looking at me, looking away looking at me, trying to decide whether to press his advantage again. And so I charge him. He's maybe 10, 15 meters away. And he circles a bit more. And we do that three or four more times until he's actually kind of the opposite direction from where he came. 
I charge him one last time, and uh, and he melts into the uh, into the bush, and I don't see him again. And then um, I, so I say, okay, that's enough bird monitoring for today. <laughs> and, um, and then I walk back to my truck very slowly with my hood down, um, so I can you know hear and see around me. And I stop sort of every ten meters and make sure he hasn't decided to take another uh, pot shot at me um, until I get back to uh, back to the road and then walk back to my truck. Yeah. yeah. Rob, remind me never to go out into the woods with you. <laughs> you <laughs> well, clearly have terrible luck when it comes to... Especially on June yeah, the 9th. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, you're using sort of honey, salmon and berry <laughs> yeah, shampoo right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like this could be a Warner Brothers cartoon, you and the bear. That oh, it's terrible. Wiley Coyote and the road runner. <laughs> There's a new star in town. <laughs> I do. I run into people and go, so, oh, Rob, so oh, how many bears this week, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, with the first bear, um, why do you think it was so aggressive? Do you think, was it just hungry? Or, well, I mean, obviously it was seeing you as prey, but um, yeah. that was it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. So some bears... Um, particularly from what I read from the literature, like I don't know the sex or the age of this bear relative size, but generally speaking, it's often younger male bears. Um, so two, three, four, five-year-old bears, um, but uh, that tend to engage in predatory attacks. And there haven't been all that many. I mean, I've lost track in the last couple of years, but up until a few years ago, there was only like 67 confirmed fatalities from black bears in North America, I think, at the time. So it doesn't happen that often. I mean, you get a lot more close encounters that aren't, um, or injuries that aren't recovered, but it's hard to get stats on those because, you know, short of, you know, canvassing all the hospitals in Canada. Um, but so there are bears that are, see you as prey. And so they'll test you. Um, and then if you uh, don't um, fight back or dissuade the attack, then they'll, they'll press their advantage. Um, and so that's, Definitely the case um, in Foliette and the one up in Armstrong uh, the, the following year. Um, that's um, so they see you spray and they'll give you a try. And if they're if you give enough resistance, uh, particularly if you have bear spray, then um, then they'll often give up the give up the um, the attempt because they're not the biggest thing in the woods. Um, at least black bears aren't. Uh, bull moose can you know drive them off, and even mm -hmm. cow moose. Um, although the bears will take the, the calves, um, uh, they have a harder time with a, a female. Um, she doesn't have antlers, but she's got um, pretty good um, uh, hoofs on, on the front end. So, uh, so black bears can be dissuaded. It's different from grizzlies. I mean, they really are the biggest thing in the woods and, and nothing really deters them. That's why you don't fight back with grizzlies. You play dead because uh, you, really, you can't fight off a grizzly. Um, okay, so bear spray would not work against a grizzly. Bear spray does work against grizzlies. Yeah, it does. Um, so the literature, um, a lot of it's done by, uh, a lot of this has been looked at by Stephen Herrero, and he's got a great book on on bear attacks. He's a, a prof out of the University of Calgary, has looked at a lot of these encounters. And bear spray is actually really quite effective on, on grizzly bears. And, in, and and surprisingly, it's actually, generally speaking, better than handguns. Um, uh, because most people don't carry long, long guns um, is, and they're pretty cumbersome. Although um, if you have, you know, serious bear problems in an area, like when we were in BC and we ran into that grizzly with cubs, we had a first nation uh, community member who was, who accompanied us and he had a rifle and he was, so he was chambering a shell in case the bear charged as we were back pedaling after we ran into the bear on the trail. Um, but bear spray is, is, can be an effective deterrent. It's often better than the handgun because handguns don't have a lot of stopping power and grizzly bears need a lot of stopping power if you shoot one. Plus, not a lot of us have a lot of practice shooting at moving um, targets coming forward at a high rate of speed in a really tense situation. And you don't get a lot of second chances, right? So, so when you go out now for 10 days, um, what, what do you carry as anti-bear defense? So I always have a backpack or a, a lumbar pack. So like a hip pack or a bum bag, whatever you want to call it. doesn't sound very manly, however you call it. But um, on either side of those, I'll have a bear. I'll have a can. If I'm working by myself, I'll have a can of bear spray on each side. 
bear spray has to be immediately accessible. If it is in the top pocket of your pack, you will never get to it in time, most likely. Mm. So I have those. And um, if it's somewhere remote, if it's not somewhere too remote, I'll just have one can of bear spray. And I'll have a, I've got like a, you know, a, a blade knife that's got like a five inch uh, sort of fixed blade. If you need a knife, it, it's you're really, it's a Hail Mary, right? That means mm -hmm. the bear's on top of you and you run out of bear spray and you're trying to stab out his eyes. Um, it did work for uh, Laura Darby, a friend of mine, who, who whose partner, field partner, drove off a bear with a knife. She didn't have a knife and she talked about how hard. And I always thought, oh yeah, you gouge him in the eyes with your thumbs and stuff, right? But he, she said, they got really tiny little eyes, you know, and they got all these teeth <laughs> where you can get those eyes. And, you know, it's got claws that are raking you. Um, and so, yeah, you don't, and the knife isn't all that helpful. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of like the spear I carried with me in Africa. It's kind of nice, but it, yeah, you know, it's probably not going to work very well. Well, Rob, thank you so much. Um, I have to admit, after hearing this, I will be carrying bear spray with me when I go out into the, the, the North Woods. Um, I hadn't really thought about it much in the past, but uh, boy, that you've you really uh, created a very vivid picture of what can go wrong out there. So um, I'm glad that you actually made it through. Um, and thanks again for coming on the program and then sharing it with our audience. Uh, great to chat with you guys. Um, yeah, I'm a big proponent of bear spray. Uh, um, so I'm glad that that uh, at least one more person will be carrying it out there. Yeah. Thank you very much to me as well. I'm, a, I'm kind of scared to leave the house even in Brooklyn at the moment. So <laughs> I have to go out for dinner. I don't know. I've got no bear spray. But maybe I can take a carving knife. <laughs> Just for the so yeah, I had no idea. I, I mean, I knew obviously grizzly bears were a force to be reckoned with, but I've just never thought about black bears as remotely worrying, but that's that's all changed now. So well, as long as you go with a friend who doesn't run as fast as you, you should be good. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my kids are for our Tyler Shoelaces together. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. 